Chapter Six C of the Shake. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. The Shake by E. M. Hall. Chapter Six C. I will do what you want. I will do anything you want. Only be kind to me, Ahmed, she whispered unsteadily. She had never called him by his name before. She did not even know that she had done so now. But at the sound of it, a curious look crossed his face, and he drew her into his arms with hands that were as gentle as they had been cruel before. She let him lift her face to his, and met his searching gaze bravely. Holding her look with the mesmerism that he could exert when he chose, he read in her face her final surrender, and knew that while it pleased him to keep her, he had broken her utterly to his hand. A strange expression grew in his eyes as they travelled slowly over her. She was like a fragile reed in his strong grasp, that he could crush without an effort. And yet for four months she had fought him, matching his determination with a courage that had won his admiration, even while it had exasperated him. He knew she feared him. He had seen terror leap into her flickering eyes when she had defied him most. Her defiance and her hatred, which had piqued him by contrast with the fawning adulation to which he had been accustomed, and which had wearied him infinitely, had provoked in him a fixed resolve to master her, before he tired of her, she must yield her will to him absolutely, and to-night he knew that the last struggle had been made, that she would never oppose him again, that she was clay in his hands to do with as he would. And the knowledge that he had won gave him no feeling of exultation. Instead, a vague, indefinite sense of irritation swept over him, and made him swear softly under his breath. The satisfaction he had expected in his triumph was lacking, and the unaccountable dissatisfaction that filled him seemed inexplicable. He did not understand himself, and he looked down at her again with a touch of impatience. She was very lovely, he thought, with a strange new appreciation of the beauty he had appropriated, and very womanly in the soft clinging green dress. The slim boyish figure that rode with him had a charm all its own, but it was the woman in her that sent the hot blood racing through his veins and made his heart beat as it was beating now. His eyes lingered a moment on her bright curls, on her dark-fringed, pleading eyes, and on her bare neck, startlingly white against the jade-green of her gown. Then he put her from him. Va, he said gently. Dépêche-toi. She looked after him as he went through the curtains with a long, sobbing sigh. She was paying a heavy price for her happiness, but she would have paid a heavier one willingly. Nothing mattered now that he was not angry any more. She knew what her total submission meant. It was an end to all individualism, a complete self-abnegation, 
an absolute surrender to his wishes, his moods, and his temper. And she was content that it should be so. Her love was prepared to endure whatever he might put upon her. Nothing that he could do could alter that, and nothing should make her own her love. She had hidden it from him, and she would hide it from him, cost what it might. Though he did not love her, he wanted her still. She had read that in his eyes five minutes ago. And she was happy, even for that. She turned to the glass suddenly and wrenched the silk folds off her shoulder. She looked at the marks of his fingers on the delicate skin with a twist of the lips, then shut her eyes with a little gasp and hid her bruised arm hastily, her mouth quivering. But she did not blame him. She had brought it on herself. She knew his mood, and he did not know his own strength. "'If he killed me, he could not kill my love,' she murmured with a little pitiful smile. The men were waiting for her, and with a murmured apology for her lateness, she took her place. The sheikh and his guest resumed the conversation that her entrance had interrupted. Diana's thoughts were in confusion. She felt as if she were in some wild, improbable dream. An Arab sheikh, a French explorer, and herself, playing the conventional hostess in the midst of lawless unconventionalism. She looked around the tent that had become so familiar, so dear. It seemed different tonight, as if the advent of the stranger had introduced a foreign atmosphere. She had grown so accustomed to the routine that had been imposed upon her that even the vicomte's servant standing behind his master seemed strange. The man's likeness to his twin brother was striking, the only difference being that while Gaston's face was clean-shaven, Henri's upper lip was hidden by a neat dark moustache. The service was, as always, perfect, silent, and quick. She glanced at the sheikh covertly. There was a look on his face that she had never seen, and a ring in his voice that was different even from the tone she had heard when Gaston had come back on the night of her flight. That had been relief and the affection of a man for a valued servant. This was the deep affection of a man for the one chosen friend the love passing the love of women. And the jealousy she had felt in the morning welled up uncontrollably. She looked from the sheikh to the man who was absorbing all his attention. But in his pale, clever face, half hidden by the close beard, she saw no trace of the conceited, smirking egotist she had imagined. And his voice, as low as the sheikh's, but more animated, was not the voice of a man unduly elated or conscious of himself. And as she looked, her eyes met his. A smile that was extraordinarily sweet and half-sad lit up his face. "'Is it permitted to admire Madame's horsemanship?' he asked, with a little bow. Diana colored faintly and twisted the jade necklace round her fingers nervously. "'It is nothing,' she said, with a shy smile that his sympathetic personality evoked, in spite of herself. "'With a dancer it is all foolishness and not vice. One has to hold on very tightly.' 
it would have been humiliating to precipitate myself at the feet of a stranger. Monseigneur would not have approved of the concession to the dancer's peculiarities. It is an education to ride his horses, monsieur. It is a strain to the nerves to ride beside some of them, replied the vicomte pointedly. Diana laughed with pure amusement. The man whose coming she had loathed was making the dreadful ordeal very easy for her. I sympathize, monsieur. Was Chaitan very vile? If monsieur de Saint-Hubert is trying to suggest to you that he suffers from nerves, Diane, broke in the shake with a laugh, disabuse yourself at once. He has none. Saint-Hubert turned to him with a quick smile. Et toi, Ahmed, do you remember? And he plunged into a flood of reminiscences that lasted until the end of the dinner. The vicomte had brought with him a pile of newspapers and magazines, and Diana curled up on the divan with an armful, hungry for news. But somehow, as she dipped into the batch of papers, her interest waned. After four months of complete isolation, it was difficult to pick up the threads of current events, allusions were incomprehensible, and controversies seemed pointless. The happenings of the world appeared tame beside the great adventure that was carrying her on irresistibly, and whose end she could not see and dared not think of. She pushed them aside carelessly and kept only on her knee a magazine that served as a pretext for her silence. When Gaston brought coffee, the vicomte hailed him with a gay laugh. Enfin, Gaston, after two years, the nectar of the gods again. There is a new machine for you amongst my things, mon ami, providing it has survived Henri's packing. He brought a cup to Diana and set it on a stool beside her. Ahmed flatters himself I come to see him, madame. I do not. I come to drink Gaston's coffee. It has become proverbial, the coffee of Gaston. I propitiate him every time I come with a new apparatus for making it. The last is a marvel of ingenuity. Excuse me, I go to drink it with the reverence it inspires. It is a right, madame, not a gastronomic indulgence. Once more the sympathetic eyes looked straight into hers, and the quick blood rushed into her face as she bent her head again, hurriedly, over the magazine. She knew instinctively that he was trying to help her, talking nonsense with a tact that ignored her equivocal position. She was grateful to him, but even his chivalry hurt. She watched him under her thick lashes as he went back to the shake and sat down beside him, refusing his host's proffered cigarettes with a wry face of disgust and a laughing reference to a perverted palate as he searched for his own. The hatred she had been prepared to give him had died away during dinner. Only the jealousy remained, and even that had changed from its first intensity to an envy that brought a sob into her throat. She envied him the light 
that shone in the Arab's dark eyes. She envied him the intonation of the soft, slow voice she loved. Her eyes turned to the sheikh. He was leaning back with his hands clasped behind his head, talking with a cigarette between his teeth. His attitude towards his European friend was that of an equal, the haughty, peremptory accent that was noticeable when he spoke to his followers was gone, and a flat contradiction from Saint-Hubert provoked only a laugh and a gesture of acceptance. As they sat talking, the contrast between the two men was strongly marked. Beside the Frenchman's thin, spare frame and pale face, which gave him an air of delicacy, the sheikh looked like a magnificent animal in superb condition, and his quiet repose accentuated the vicomte's quick, nervous manner. Under the screen of her thick lashes, Diana watched them, unheeded. Their voices rose and fell continuously. They seemed to have a great deal to say to each other, and they talked indiscriminately French and Arabic, so that much that they said was incomprehensible to her. She was glad that it should be so. She did not want to know what they were saying. It seemed as if they had forgotten her presence with the accumulated conversation of two years. She was thankful to be left alone, happy for the rare chance of studying the beloved face unnoticed. It was seldom she had the opportunity, for when they were alone she was afraid to look at him, much lest her secret should be betrayed in her eyes. But she looked at him now, unobserved, with passionate longing. She was so intent that she did not notice Gaston come in, until he seemed suddenly to appear from nowhere beside his master. He murmured something softly, and the shake got up. He turned to Saint-Hubert. "'Trouble with one of the horses. Will you come? It may interest you.' They went out together, leaving her alone, and she slipped away to the inner room. In half an hour they came back, and for a few minutes longer stayed chatting. Then the vicomte yawned and held out his watch with a laugh. The sheikh went with him to his tent and sat down on the side of his guest's camp-bed. Saint-Hubert dismissed the waiting Henri with a nod and started to undress silently. The flow of talk and ready laugh seemed to have deserted him, and he frowned as he wrenched his things off with nervous irritability. The sheikh watched him for a while, and then took the cigarette out of his mouth with a faint smile. "'Eh bien, Raoul, say it,' he said quietly. Saint-Hubert swung round. "'You might have spared her,' he cried. "'What?' "'What? Good God, man, me!' The sheikh flicked the ash from his cigarette with a gesture of indifference. "'Your courier was delayed. He only came this morning. It was too late, then, to make other arrangements.' Saint-Hubert took a hasty turn up and down the tent, and stopped in front of the sheikh, with his hands thrust deep in his pockets, and his shoulders hunched up about his ears. "'It is abominable,' he burst out. "'You go too far, Ahmed.' The sheikh laughed cynically. "'What do you expect of a savage?' 
when an arab sees a woman that he wants he takes her i only follow the customs of my people saint hubert clicked his tongue impatiently your people which people he asked in a low voice the sheik sprang to his feet with flashing eyes his hand dropping heavily on saint hubert's shoulder stop raoul not even from you he cried passionately and then broke off abruptly and the anger died out of his face he sat down again quietly with a little amused laugh why this sudden access of morality mon ami you know me and the life i lead you have seen women in my camp before now saint hubert dismissed the remark with a contemptuous wave of the hand there is no comparison you know it as well as i he said succinctly he moved over slowly to the camp table where his toilet things had been laid out and began removing the links from the cuffs of his shirt she is english surely that is reason enough he flung over his shoulder you ask me me to spare a woman because she is english my good raoul you amuse me replied the sheik with an ugly sneer where did you see her asked saint hubert curiously in the streets of biskra for five minutes four months ago the vicomte turned quickly you love her he shot out with all the suddenness of an american third degree the sheik exhaled a long thin cloud of blue smoke and watched it eddying towards the top of the tent have i ever loved a woman and this woman is english he said in a voice as hard as steel if you loved her you would not care for her nationality the sheik spat the end of his cigarette on to the floor contemptuously by allah her cursed race sticks in my throat but for that he shrugged his shoulders impatiently and got up from the bed on which he was sitting let her go then said saint hubert quickly i can take her back to biskra the sheik turned to him slowly a sudden flame of fierce jealousy leaping into his eyes has she bewitched you too do you want her for yourself raoul his voice was as low as ever but there was a dangerous ring in it saint hubert flung his hands out in a gesture of despair ahmed are you mad are you going to quarrel with me after all these years on such a pretext bon dieu what do you take me for there's been too much in our lives together ever to let a woman come between us what is a woman or any one to me where you are concerned it is for quite a different reason that i ask you that i beg you to let this girl go forgive me raoul you know my devilish temper muttered the sheik and for a moment his hand rested on saint hubert's arm you have not answered me ahmed the sheik turned away she is content 
he said evasively. She has courage, amended the vicomte significantly. As you say, she has courage, agreed the sheik, without a particle of expression in his voice. Bon sang, quoted Saint-Hubert softly. The sheik swung round quickly. How do you know she has good blood in her? It is very evident, replied Saint-Hubert dryly. That is not what you mean. What do you know? The vicomte shrugged his shoulders and, going to his suitcase, took from it an English illustrated paper, and, opening it at the central page, handed it to the sheikh silently. Ahmed ben Hassan moved closer to the hanging lamp so that the light fell directly on the paper in his hands. There were two large full-length photographs of Diana, one in evening dress and the other, as the vicomte had first seen her, in riding-breeches and short jacket, her hat and whip lying at her feet, and the bridle of the horse that was standing beside her, over her arm. Under the photographs was written, Miss Diana Mayo, whose protracted journey in the desert is causing anxiety to a large circle of friends. Miss Mayo left Biskra under the guidance of a reputable caravan leader four months ago, with the intention of journeying for four weeks in the desert and returning to Oran. Since the first camp, nothing has been heard of Miss Mayo or her caravan. Further anxiety is occasioned by the fact that considerable unrest is reported amongst the tribes in the locality, towards which Miss Mayo was travelling. Her brother, Sir Aubrey Mayo, who is detained in America as the result of an accident, is in constant cable communication with the French authorities. Miss Mayo is a well-known sportswoman, and has travelled widely. For a long time the sheik studied the photograph silently. Then, with slow deliberation, he tore the page out of the paper and rolled it up. "'With your permission,' he said coolly, and held it over the flame of the little lamp by the bedside. He held it until the burning paper charred to nothing in his hand, and then flicked the ashes from his long fingers. "'Henri has seen this?' "'Unquestionably, Henri reads all my papers,' replied Saint-Hubert, with a touch of impatience. "'Then Henri can hold his tongue,' said the sheik nonchalantly, searching in the folds of his waistcloth for his case, and lighting another cigarette with elaborate carelessness. "'What are you going to do?' asked Saint-Hubert pointedly. "'I? Nothing.' The French authorities have too many affairs on hand, and too high an appreciation of Ahmed ben Hassan's horses, to prosecute inquiries in my direction. Besides, they are not responsible. Mademoiselle Mayo was warned of the risks she ran before she left Biskra. She chose to take the risks, et voila! Will nothing make you change your mind? I am not given to changing my mind. You know that. And besides, why should I, as I told you before? She is content. 
Saint-Hubert looked him full in the face. Content! Cowed is the better word, Ahmed. The sheik laughed softly. You flatter me, Raoul. Do not let us speak any more about it. It is an unfortunate contretemps, and I regret that it distresses you, he said lightly. Then, with a sudden change of manner, he laid his hands on the vicomte's shoulders. But this can make no difference to our friendship, mon ami. That is too big a thing to break down over a difference of opinion. You are a French nobleman, and I, he gave a little bitter laugh, I am an uncivilized Arab. We cannot see things in the same way. You could, but you will not, Ahmed, replied the vicomte with an accent of regret. It is not worthy of you. He paused and then looked up again with a little crooked smile and a shrug of defeat. Nothing can ever make any difference with us, Ahmed. I can disagree with you, but I can't wipe out the recollection of the last twenty years. A few minutes later the sheik left him and went out into the night. He traversed the short distance between the tents slowly, stopping to speak to a sentry, and then pausing outside his own tent to look up at the stars. The Persian hound that always slept across the entrance uncurled himself and got up, thrusting a wet nose into his hand. The sheik fondled the huge creature absently, stroking the dog's shaggy head mechanically, hardly conscious of what he was doing. A great restlessness that was utterly foreign to his nature had taken possession of him. He had been aware of it growing within him for some time, becoming stronger daily, and now the coming of Raoul de Saint-Aubert seemed to have put the crowning touch to a state of mind that he was unable to understand. He had never been given to thinking of himself, or criticizing or analyzing his passing whims and fancies. All his life he had taken what he wanted. Nothing on which he had ever laid eyes of desire had been denied him. His wealth had brought him everything he had ever wished. His passionate temper had been characteristic even when he was a child, but these strange fits of unreasonable irritability were new, and he searched for a cause vainly. His keen eyes looked through the darkness towards the south. Was it the nearness of his hereditary enemy, who had presumed to come closer than he had ever done before to the border of the country that Ahmed ben Hassan regarded as his own, that was causing this great unrest? He laughed contemptuously. Nothing would give him greater pleasure than coming into actual collision with the man whom he had been trained from boyhood to hate. As long as Ibrahim Omer remained within his own territory, Ahmed ben Hassan held his hand and kept in check his fierce followers, whose eyes were turned longingly towards the debatable land. But once let the robber sheikh step an inch over the border, and it was war, and war until one or both of the chiefs were dead. And if he died who had no son to succeed him? The huge tribe would split up in numerous little families for want of a leader to keep them together, 
and it would be left to the French government to take over, if they could, the vast district that he had governed despotically. And at the thought he laughed again. No, it was not Ibrahim Omer who was troubling him. He pushed the hound aside and went into the tent. The divan where Diana had been sitting was strewn with magazines and papers. The imprint of her slender body still showed in the soft, heaped-up cushions, and a tiny lace-edged handkerchief peeped out under one of them. He picked it up and looked at it curiously, and his forehead contracted slowly in the heavy black scowl. He turned his burning eyes toward the curtains that divided the rooms. Saint-Hubert's words rang in his ears. English! he muttered with a terrible oath. And I have made her suffer as I swore any of that damned race should, if they fell into my hands. Merciful Allah! Why does it give me so little pleasure? End of chapter 6C Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon